This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible for free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, hacking biology, mouse vampire retraction, and turning waste into money. But first up, here's the news. Makers, get ready. The Sydney Mini Maker Fair is returning for 2014. The Powerhouse Museum will be hosting the Sydney Mini Maker Fair over the weekend of August 16th and 17th as part of the Sydney Design Festival 2014. You have until 5pm July 4th to apply for a table to show your creations. It's free to apply, but if successful it will cost $200 to show your stuff. The fee includes public liability insurance and the right to sell things. Last year there were robot makers, 3D printed jewellery makers, biohackers, electronic instrument makers, electric car converters, model rocket launchers, mini satellite makers, and all kinds of amazing people showing clever creative things that they've made themselves. Makers will sell you kits to make your own stuff, or simply share their knowledge and help you learn your own skills. It's called the Mini Maker Fair because the name is licensed from Make Magazine in the USA. Mini Maker Fairs are held all over the world. This is the second year for the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, and the theme this year is Design Futures, with a focus on new technologies and approaches, while still leaving room for people making things in the old-school crafting way. Last year, I recorded a dozen interviews with makers on the day. Having the fair over two days will make it easier to find time to see everything. You only have a few weeks to get your entry in by July 4th and then only six weeks to design and prepare your invention or artwork for display over August 16th and 17th. Entry to view the fair will just be the cost of entry to the museum. Go to makeafairsydney.com for the details and the application form, and get making! To the moon, Pluto's moon that is, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft is moving towards Pluto to explore Sharon one of Pluto's five moons. The aim of the mission is to search for evidence of an ancient underground ocean on Sharon while checking out Pluto close up. The robot explorer was launched in 2006 and will fly to Sharon in July 2015. New Horizons is the fifth probe to travel through interplanetary space so far from the Sun and the first ever to travel to Pluto. New Horizons is currently over 28 astronomical units from Earth which is more than 28 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, or around 4,300 million kilometres from Earth, 
with just three astronomical units, or 440 million kilometres, left to go. This means New Horizons is about nine-tenths of the way to Pluto, which is right on track. Charon is Pluto's largest moon, and at 1,200 kilometres in diameter, over half the size of Pluto, it actually doesn't rotate around Pluto so much as Pluto and Charon rotate around each other. This made it easy to figure out how large Pluto really was, with such a big body yanking on its orbit. It turns out it was a lot smaller than we had ever expected. This led Pluto to famously being reclassified from a planet to a dwarf planet in 2006 by the International Astronomical Union. Charon has five planets, which is not bad for a dwarf planet. The basic questions NASA wants answered by New Horizons include what is its atmosphere made of and how does the atmosphere behave? What does the surface of Pluto look like? Are there big geological structures? How do particles ejected from the Sun interact with Pluto's atmosphere? The science payload includes seven instruments. RALF, Visible and Infrared Imager Spectrometer, to provide colour, composition and thermal maps. ALICE, Ultraviolet Imaging Spectrometer, analyzes composition and structure of Pluto's atmosphere and looks for atmospheres around Charon and Kuiper Belt objects. REX, Radio Science Experiment, measures atmospheric composition and temperature, passive radiometer. LORI, Long Range Reconnaissance Imager, telescopic camera, maps Pluto's far side and provides high resolution geologic data. SWAP, Solar Wind Around Pluto, Solar Wind and Plasma Spectrometer, measures atmospheric escape rate and observes Pluto's interaction with the solar wind. Pepsi, Pluto Energetic Particle Spectrometer Science Investigation. Energetic Particle Spectrometer, measures the composition and density of ions, that is plasma, escaping from Pluto's atmosphere. SDC, the Student Dust Counter, built and operated by students, measures the space dust, peppering new horizons, measuring its voyage across the solar system. NASA currently has the Hubble Space Telescope searching the Kuiper Belt for an object that New Horizons can visit after it leaves Pluto. The Kuiper Belt is a vast debris field of icy bodies left over from the solar system's formation 4.6 billion years ago. A Kuiper Belt object has never been seen close up because the belt is 5 to 7 billion kilometres from the Sun. Now, many of you listening may be complaining that I've misproduced the name of the moon by calling it Sharon instead of Karen. After all, it's named after the ferryman of the dead in Greek mythology, and the Greeks pronounce it Karen. However, the discoverer James Christie named it Sharon, both after the Greek mythological figure and also after his wife Charlene, or Shah for short. So, English speaking astronomers say Sharon as the discoverer intended, and non-English speakers sometimes go for Karen or Charon. Don't pay the ferryman, don't even fix the price, until he takes you to the other side. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet 
on www.diffusionradio.com. Mouse vampire rejuvenation retracted? Several years ago, the original experiment showed that when blood fresh from a young mouse circulates in an old mouse, some of the old mouse's symptoms of aging are reversed. This suggested that the young blood had something in it that the bodies of the old mice could no longer produce. Last week, I was going to bring you mouse vampire news from Amy Wager's lab about a protein found in the blood of young mice that caused old mice to develop stronger muscles and smarter brains. However, last-minute checking of the story revealed that some papers from her lab on the subject have been retracted, so I put the story on hold until I could study the details. It turns out that a paper from 2008 and a paper from 2010 where the research was conducted by a postdoctoral fellow who is no longer working at the lab were retracted. But the latest research I wanted to report to you has not been retracted. Instead, some parallel research has come up with similar findings and is in the process of being commercialised. Amy Wager's lab at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute in 2014 has discovered that growth differentiation factor 11 from young blood causes stem cells to reproduce and rejuvenate muscles, hearts and brains in elderly mice. She's published three new papers in the journal Science. So what went wrong with the earlier papers? The postdoctoral fellow had used in each paper some figures from unrelated published research. As a result, the papers that were retracted appear to have wrongly identified the factor in the blood that caused the rejuvenation effect, so the research had to be done again. The research from the first paper has been reproduced in one of these new papers, and the research from the second paper has not been reproduced and published. The postdoctoral research fellow has protested publicly that she'd simply been sloppy and made mistakes, but had not tried to deceive anyone, and there was no fraud. She refused to sign the retraction papers and stopped working at Amy Wager's lab at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. The mice did appear to get younger, but the causes were in doubt, due to the poor data management and archiving system that the postdoc says caused her mistakes. Originally, they surgically connected a young mouse and an old mouse at the hip, so that the young mouse's blood circulated in the old mouse's body. The older mouse's heart healed like a young mouse. The team then screened the blood of young and old mice to look for differences and found that the older mice had less of a protein growth factor called GDF11, which is also found in human blood. GDF11 stimulates the production of new stem cells. This time, Amy Wager's lab at Harvard University just injected growth differentiation factor 11 into old mice, and this time they showed that old mice got smarter brains and stronger muscles with GDF11. 15-month-old mice in middle age were injected once a day with GDF11 for a month. The volume of the blood cells in their brain increased by 50% and the number of brain stem cells by 29%. Both are known to improve brain function. Muscle fibres in old mice injected with GDF11 doubled in size to match that of two-month-old mice. Images from an electron microscope show a striking reordering of muscle fibres from a disordered state to the highly irregular appearance of young muscle. The endurance of the mice also improved, enabling them to spend an average of 57 minutes on a treadmill, compared with 35 minutes for untreated old mice. Amy Wages told MIT Technology Review there is a common signal talking to the brain, heart and skeletal muscles. The same signal is talking to at least three organs and multiple cell types within each organ. 
Based on Wage's new and previous results, the Boston-area venture capital firm Atlas Venture has started a still unnamed company to commercialise GDF-11. The company might target heart failure first, since Wage's team has shown that the growth factor can reverse age-related thickening of heart muscle in mice. In human patients, such thickening of the heart tissue can cause heart failure, and the condition currently has no treatment. Other such growth factors, which encourage cell division, have been linked to cancer. Furthermore, blood vessel growth is a common feature of cancer development, and genes involved in stem cell function and regeneration have been linked to tumour growth. The Harvard-based studies on heart muscle, skeletal muscle and brains were all conducted on the same mice, and the longest that the researchers studied the treated mice was 60 days. Wages also warned MIT Technology Review that GDF-11 isn't the whole answer, that there are other factors in young blood that cause rejuvenation in old mice that are yet to be identified. And before she jumps into trialling GDF-11 on humans, Dr. Wager wants to find out why GDF-11 declines with age in mice, and whether old mice develop a counter-reaction to GDF-11 in their systems. She expects to have the answers in three to five years, and then be ready to try GDF-11 in humans. Growth differentiation factor 11 is a circulating factor that reverses age-related cardiac hypertrophy, was published in the journal Cell in 2013. Restoring systemic GDF-11 levels reverses age-related dysfunction in mouse skeletal muscle and vascular and neurogenic rejuvenation of the aging mouse brain by young systemic factors were published in the journal Science in May 2014. In a separate but parallel study, a team led by Tony Weiss-Corre at the Stanford School of Medicine in California gave 18-month-old middle-aged mice eight injections of blood plasma taken from young three-month-old mice. Three weeks later, the brain cells of the older mice had 20% more dendrites, the spines that relay messages between neurons, than mice given a placebo. The mice performed about 50% better on two standard tests of cognitive function. Overall, the team saw improvements in learning and memory and a strengthening of connections between neurons in the hippocampus, a structure important to memory that deteriorates with age, especially with diseases such as Alzheimer's. The Stanford group, unlike the Harvard group, didn't identify a specific protein responsible for the effects. Team leader Weiss Kore has co-founded a biotech company called Alkahest to test the therapeutic potential of his group's findings. His team is already planning a human trial for 2014. They want to inject blood plasma from young, healthy donors into people with Alzheimer's disease to see if it improves their brain function. Could this create an unhealthy new demand for young blood donors? Let's hope they find and synthesise all the active factors before that happens. The Stanford paper was published in the journal Nature Medicine and titled Young Blood Reverses Age-Related Impairments in Cognitive Function and Synaptic Plasticity in Mice. At Dorkbot, the collective for technological artists, Matt gave a talk about setting up a lab for amateurs to play with biological science. Matt recently graduated from the University of New South Wales in microbiology. He has a strong interest in do-it-yourself citizen science for amateurs to safely hack biology. He's designed and built affordable versions of some sophisticated molecular biology equipment to set up his own lab. After Dorkbot, we went to a pub in Paddington, where Matt spoke with me outside about do-it-yourself molecular biology. I began by asking him to describe Biohack Sydney. Biohack Sydney started early 2013, seeing the rest of the world 
uh, progress in do-it-yourself science and thinking that Australia should do similar and we should encourage people to get involved and understand science since it's so critical in all of our lives. You were looking at building a qPCR machine. Would you like to explain what that is? qPCR stands for quantitative polymerase chain reaction. At its most basic, it amplifies the piece of DNA that you want to amplify so it becomes a usable substance. From there, you can use it in cloning or diagnostics, research. It is paramount to most of molecular um, biology. And how much do commercial machines normally cost? Roughly around $30,000. And how much did you build your prototype for? About 150. That's pretty good. Not bad. It was a prototype, does one sample and was a proof of concept. The uh, latest open source uh, qPCR machine is absolutely amazing. For about 250, it can do six samples and is um, based on microfluidic principles, so it uses far less energy and far less of the sample, which is really critical because sometimes you only have a tiny amount and now you can use it. Can you briefly explain what microfluidic is? Microfluidic is channels that are on the micro scale and it has amazing properties when they flow through these micro channels. You can coat the uh, surrounds of the channels with various substances to affect the fluid that flows through it so you can do reactions while it flows through the device and yeah. Explaining my fluids was hard. That's good, that's good. (laughs) Where did you find out how to build this? Did you design the whole thing yourself? Uh, The one I built, yeah, I designed it myself based on other principles. But I used used heat sinks from video cards. I used the um, heat block from an old PCR machine and Arduino and scrap heat sinks for the rest of it. Yeah. And you made a later one from open source? No, I'm um, going to build it. (laughs) Not yet. And you were talking about plasma ovens. Mm. Okay, plasma ovens are critical for the creation of these microfluidic devices because you need to uh, treat the glass or the substance that you're using to etch. So glass is very hydrophobic and to make it hydrophilic you need to attack it with free radicals caused by the plasma which you create in the plasma oven. So in the plasma oven it's a microwave and you've got a hole in the top and you create a vacuum inside the oven in a PVC tube, introduce some oxygen, create the vacuum again, turn it on with the glass slide in there and treats glass. And then on that glass you etch the channels and that creates the mold and from there you can make the microfluid device. So hydrophobic is water repelling and hydrophilic is water attracting and so the water just goes in the channels. Yes. You're looking at building a a certified lab for biohacking. Mm. Yes. So far, we think the best option is using a cargo container. And we think we can do that for around 10,000. But yeah, we're looking for land to put it on. And that's where we're at at the moment. 
Where does most of the 10,000 go? Is that equipment or is that for rent for the land? Uh, about 1,800 for the container was an estimate. Uh, two grand for rent and uh, stainless steel benches, air conditioning, a bit of extra gear, I can't remember what. But um, yeah, most of it was rent and the container and transporting the container. So this would be, once you've got $10,000 from a benefactor, a donor, a sponsor, a grant, whatever it takes, was this a, a biohacking lab that would be available to interested people? Definitely, definitely. We would have to, of course, you know, run introductory courses and teach people appropriate lab safety methods and all that kind of stuff. But if someone is actually interested in it and, you know, shows they're competent, We'll be more than happy to share this technology. And you mentioned that um, an easy thing might be to use yogurt to insert genes into things. Oh no, the yogurt is more just a uh, proof of concept and a kind of kind of gimmicky way of just explaining we can have this thing and then put this gene in there and now it glows and that's how it works. It's a visual and very easy, approachable way of doing it. Glow-in-the-dark yogurt. Mm, definitely. Sounds worth doing? Yeah, not meant to eat it, but why not? Would it be harmful to eat it? Mildly carcinogenic, apparently, but if you eat burnt toast, you know, about the same, probably. And your $10,000 is for the biohacking lab. What would it cost for a small commercial lab by comparison? Small commercial lab, according to Meow's estimate, around 120 grand. It's a pretty good comparison, really. I think it's pretty good value for $10,000. Yeah, definitely. Science pervades our entire world. We should probably understand it pretty well. I mean, why not? <laughs> and it's fun. Oh, hell yeah. Building things, creating things, understanding. And where should people look to learn more about Biohacksid? Our Facebook group is Biohacksid. Come join, post and come along to one of our meetings. Right. Well, Matt, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Matt from Biohack Sydney, teaching people to make glowing yogurt that's no more carcinogenic than burned toast. Matt asked for his surname to be withheld. The Consensus Green Tech Awards were held again this year to honour innovators who have invented a new product or service that helps make the world a better place while also making a successful business for the inventor. After the awards, I spoke with one of the winners, Ken Richards, the Managing Director of Leaf Energy. I began by asking him to describe the process that won the award. Leaf Energy has a process which breaks down plant biomass into its constituent parts, cellulose, hemicellulose and lignin. So we basically, using a waste reagent, glycerol, can make waste, two lots of waste, into useful products. And those useful products uh, worldwide are starting to gain real acceptance in replacing oil uh, as a source of the carbon molecules and therefore the carbon benefits and savings are immense. So we're basically using the green barrel to replace the black barrel. What sort of waste products, what sort of biomass are you converting? Uh, we've done work on waste sugarcane after it's been milled. Uh, we've done work on blue gum eucalyptus and that's either sawdust or, or off cuts or in fact chip. Um, we've done work on palm oil waste uh, from palm oil obviously and we've also done a little bit of work on softwood. Um, the process is basically amenable to any uh, biomass. We need to tailor it to each 
species of biomass, but we can use any, any waste plant material to use on our process. And so the product you produce from this can replace mineral oil in manufacturing? Uh, no, more specifically, uh, the, the black barrel provides a whole pile of carbon molecules for plastics and chemicals, etc. And those same carbon molecules are in the biomass. It's just Mother Nature's taken 100 million years to turn them into oil. So we free up those molecules, basically breaking down the plant biomass into cellulose, hemicellulose and lignin, all of which are, are building blocks for the green chemical markets. Cellulose in its own right paper, uh, fabrics and fibres, etc. So it has a lot of uses and is getting a lot more uses. Cellulose derivatives uh, are used in drilling mud. Cellulose can be used in 3D printing. So the outlook for, for cellulose as a material going forward is quite positive. And what's next for Leaf Energy? Well, we're basically through the technology development side. There's still a bit of fine-tuning to be done, but we're now looking to commercialise the technology. We're looking for a source of biomass and a location to build a demonstration plant. We have engineering designs now from one of the leading uh, pulping companies in the world. And in many ways, what we do is an eco-friendly, small-scale pulping for 20 tonnes per hour, which is a reasonably sized plant. So we're now about commercialising and trying to turn this very, very useful process into making some dollars. The, the team that we have at uh, Leaf Energy, uh, Alex Baker, uh, Jay Hetzel, Charles Wilson uh, and Sam and Mel is just a fabulous team. It's a very small team. We make do with very little money. We've come a long way in developing the technology. Um, it's at the tipping point now on a world scale for introduction to the world and we're about to do that. So the next 12 months is probably going to be as fascinating and interesting as the last 12 months. And people want to look for you online, where should they look? Uh, www.leafenergy.com.au Ken Richard, thank you very much. Good on you, Ian. Thanks very much. That was Ken Richards, CEO of Leaf Energy, who won a consensus green tech award for a process that converts agricultural waste into cellulose and carbon for industry. You can find out more at leafenergy.com.au And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me some emails so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. If you're doing something sciencey and cool, please tell me the story and send me some photos. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And please check the website for more information about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free audiobook of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com 
to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. And a big thank you to Joseph for his very generous donation this week. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.